You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode number 13 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. On Thursday, May 22nd, 1856, Democratic Congressman Preston S. Brooks from South Carolina walked across the chamber of the U.S. Senate toward the unsuspecting Republican Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts. Clutched in Brooks' hand was a gold-headed walking cane. The Senate had adjourned a short while earlier, but there were still a few senators scattered about the chamber. Sumner sat at his desk, head bent downward, signing copies of his The Crime Against Kansas speech, a two-day oration that he had just concluded 48 hours before. In that speech, Sumner had pilloried southern slave owners for supporting the violence taking place in Kansas, and he also launched personal insults against Brooks's cousin, South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler. As Brooks marched up to Sumner, what happened next would move America another step closer to the Civil War, as the dramatic and violent incident in the Senate chamber provided graphic evidence that the politics of compromise was giving way to the politics of confrontation. Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts has been described as the least racist man in America in his day. And certainly by 1856, his position in the Senate and his strong abolitionist opinions had made Sumner the country's most powerful anti-slavery voice. In Sumner's view, slavery was a monstrous evil that he had dedicated his life to eradicating. As Stephen Puglio points out in his book, the caning, the assault that drove America to civil war. Without question, Sumner's anti-slavery convictions glistened with the sheen of nobility. Where others preached compromise and moderation, he never wavered in denouncing slavery's evils to all who would listen. Where others muttered insipid platitudes, his voice was clarion clear and strong. Where others wilted under the onslaught of political attack, he stood tall and fearless, a bulwark against the slings of southern slaveholders who targeted him. He was beholden to no one, sought no ill-gotten gains, and had little interest in currying favor to advance his own political fortunes. By 1856, the abolition of slavery, pure and simple, was the driving force in his public life. End quote. But if Charles Sumner's anti-slavery convictions were noble... The manner in which he chose to express them was harsh and abrasive. 
His distant, unfriendly nature and the severely critical verbal attacks he used to denounce his opponents all combined to make him seem like an insufferably arrogant and egotistical moralist. And much of this was indeed an accurate reflection of Sumner's personality. Born in 1811, Charles Sumner was the son of a minister who died when he was young. Sumner attended private schools in Boston on scholarship, and he then attended Harvard College and Harvard Law School. And so, formally educated and occasionally displaying flashes of brilliance, Sumner appeared to have a bright future ahead of him. But still, there was something in his upbringing, or inherent in his character, that gave him a dark side. His sneering arrogance and condescension were directed at both friends and foes. His behavior showed that he cared little for the feelings of others, even members of his own family. All of his life, his relationships with members of his own family could at best be characterized as strained and awkward. Sumner had few close friends, and even once he entered politics, a pursuit that depends on the quality and number of one's personal connections and alliances, Sumner seemed incapable or unwilling of forming the relationships that were necessary for true success. During his career in the Senate, even his political allies found him exasperating. As the violence in Bleeding Kansas had escalated through 1855 and then into the spring of 1856, Charles Sumner had kept a close watch on events in that troubled Western Territory. He was well aware that the conflict in Kansas had become the focus of America's ongoing and ever more acrimonious debate over slavery. Since Sumner was known to be the most strident anti-slavery voice in Congress, many of the free state settlers in Kansas wrote letters to him, pleading for assistance. This was especially true after the administration of President Franklin Pierce chose to support the territory's fraudulently elected pro-slavery government. In March 1856, as Congress began its debate on Kansas, Charles Sumner was not the only politician in the nation's capital to realize that a showdown over slavery was drawing near. Congressman Preston Brooks and Senator Andrew Butler, both of South Carolina, issued warnings that any attempt to prevent slavery's extension into Kansas would be viewed as a direct assault on the South and its way of life. Brooks even wrote a letter to a newspaper in which he declared, The admission of Kansas into the Union as a slave state is now a point of honor with the South. It is my deliberate conviction that the fate of the South is to be decided with the Kansas issue. With the stakes so great, Charles Sumner decided that the best way he could help Kansas become a free state was to deliver a major speech from the floor of the Senate. Once the congressional debate was officially underway, Sumner wrote to a fellow abolitionist and said, I shall speak on Kansas just as soon as I can fairly get the floor, and I believe you will be content with what I shall say. Based on what Sumner had told him of his plans for the speech, a friend of Sumner's admitted he was impatient to hear the senior senator from Massachusetts for he will let fly a bomb that will scatter confusion and terror in the hostile ranks, end quote. As he always did when preparing a speech, Sumner had spent long hours carefully crafting his remarks, writing them out by hand, but then he spent more long hours practicing the speech, committing it to memory so that he could speak without referring to the text. And this practice is especially impressive with this particular speech, since printed copies of the address ran to 112 pages. 
Well, once Charles Sumner had announced his decision to deliver a major speech on Kansas, anticipation for the event began to build on Capitol Hill. And so, on May 19th, when the day finally arrived, the stifling hot Senate chamber was packed with visitors, newspaper reporters, and, of course, northern and southern politicians from both houses of Congress. Everyone was keen to hear the speech, especially since Sumner had made no secret of the fact that it would clearly express his utter disdain for the South and that he'd bolstered his arguments by including personal attacks on those who championed slavery in the Senate. At one o'clock on the afternoon of May 19th, Sumner launched into his speech, titled The Crime Against Kansas. In the packed Senate chamber, listeners hoping for a dramatic opening to the speech weren't disappointed. Sumner began his address by declaring, quote, A crime has been committed which is without example in the records of the past. It is a rape of a virgin territory, compelling it to the hateful embrace of slavery, end quote. Sumner would deliver his speech over a total of five hours on May 19th and 20th. Sumner argued that the political power employed to support the pro-slavery forces in Kansas was, quote, an essential wickedness that makes other public crimes seem like virtues, end quote. He spent the rest of his time that first day outlining the four crimes against Kansas and the four apologies offered for their crimes by their pro-slavery perpetrators. During the speech, Sumner singled out Senator David Atchison of Missouri, condemning Atchison's activities in Kansas in direct support of the violent pro-slavery forces. For good measure, Sumner also said that President Pierce was an idiot. Sumner then declared, Slavery now stands erect, clanking its chains on the territory of Kansas, surrounded by a code of death and trampling upon all cherished liberties. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On the second day of his speech, Sumner spoke on the four remedies available to stop the violence in Kansas. Sumner said the remedy of tyranny was President Pierce's decision to support the illegitimate pro-slavery territorial government. Then the remedy of folly was the suggestion of South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler 
that the people of Kansas be disarmed, which Sumner pointed out would deprive them of their Second Amendment rights. The remedy of injustice and civil war, Sumner said, was the approach advocated by Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, since it legitimized the violence and voter fraud perpetrated by the Missouri border ruffians. Sumner said that since no sensible rational person would support any of those remedies, that left only the remedy of justice and peace. In promoting this approach, Sumner called on his colleagues to approve the bold proposal made by New York Senator William H. Seward that Kansas be admitted to the Union immediately as a free state. Rather than simply laying out his arguments, Sumner chose to include personal attacks in the speech, attacks that vilified senators who, Sumner said, had, quote, raised themselves to eminence on this floor in championship of human wrongs, end quote. Sumner called out as villains two Southern senators, Andrew Butler of South Carolina and James Mason of Virginia, and one Northerner, Stephen Douglas of Illinois. Sumner's most insulting verbal attacks were directed at the elderly, ailing Butler, who was absent from the chamber because he had recently suffered a mild stroke. Sumner also launched vicious barbs at Butler's home state of South Carolina. Sumner belittled Butler by comparing him to Don Quixote, the fictional character who believes himself to be a chivalrous knight, but who is actually a foolish old man deluding himself. In Cervantes' novel, Don Quixote recruits a simple farmer, Sancho Panza, to be his squire, and then Don Quixote goes out adventuring in order to impress his lady-love, who is in reality an ugly, simple farm girl. And so Sumner said that Butler, quote, has chosen a mistress to whom he has made vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. End quote. As for Stephen Douglas, Sumner said that he was, quote, the squire of slavery, its very Sancho Panza, ready to do all its humiliating offices. End quote. Sumner's attacks against Butler were especially cruel, since, besides the allusions to Don Quixote, Sumner also targeted the physical effects of the stroke that Butler had just suffered, leaving a portion of Butler's face paralyzed and which caused Butler to slur his speech. With those remarks concerning Butler, even Sumner's supporters were shocked that he would go after the defenseless, ill old man in such an outrageous and spiteful way. After he finally finished his speech at three in the afternoon on May 20th, a perfect storm of displeasure and disapproval broke over Sumner. Few and far between were those who expressed approval of his oration. Instead, Stephen Douglas condemned the speech as obscene and vulgar, and Senator James Mason of Virginia, whom Sumner had personally attacked in the speech, told his colleagues that to listen to Sumner was to hear vice in its most odious forms. And then, Congressman Preston Brooks, although not personally targeted in the speech, was nevertheless outraged over Sumner's condemnation of South Carolina and over the personal insults hurled at Andrew Butler. Much of Brooks' outrage stemmed from the fact, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, Butler, besides being a fellow member of the South Carolina congressional delegation, also happened to be Brooks's cousin. And so Preston Brooks saw Charles Sumner's remarks as a personal affront to his family, his state, and his honor. And so as a Southern gentleman, Brooks decided he had no choice 
but to avenge himself against Sumner for these insults. According to Stephen Puglio in his book, The Caning, in the weeks following the pivotal event of his life, Preston Brooks would be almost unanimously vilified by Northerners as Bully Brooks, hot-headed, evil, hot-tempered, a dastardly ruffian, black and wicked, a coward and an assassin, even mentally unbalanced, all characterizations that were understandable in light of his actions, but mostly inaccurate. In fact, with the exception of his rambunctious college years and the two years leading up to May 22, 1856, commencing with the debate on Kansas-Nebraska in 1854, the South Carolina congressman had spent most of his adult life building a reputation as a reasonable, even gentle moderate, end quote. Born in 1819, Preston Brooks was, by all indications, a devoted son, brother, husband, and father. He was married twice, his first wife died after a lengthy illness, and then Brooks married her cousin, Martha, with whom he had four girls. An affectionate father, Brooks was devastated in 1851 when his three-year-old daughter, Sally, caught cold, became feverish, and died. In his diary, Brooks wrote, It is hard, very hard, to give up one so sweet. Her mother is unconscious of her present condition and is asking the poor babe if she knows her. My heart bleeds. My God, I pray to thee to let this affliction prepare my heart and make it acceptable to thee. Even as a young man, Preston Brooks had a reputation for good sense and sound judgment. He told a friend that defending honor through violence was the bane and plague of human society, and yet, like so many other high-born southern young men, Brooks could not escape engaging in the practice of dueling. In 1840, after he was shot in the leg in a duel, he told the doctor who treated him that he would never again engage in dueling, for in my conscience I do think it to be wrong. After that, Brooks personally intervened to prevent duels, and after entering Congress, he proposed that members who carried a concealed weapon into the House chamber should be expelled. Nevertheless, after Charles Sumner's outrageous speech on the floor of the Senate, Brooks considered challenging the Massachusetts senator to a duel. While dueling had long been outlawed in Washington, D.C., as it had almost everywhere, it was still a fairly common practice in 1856, at least south of the Mason-Dixon line. Dueling allowed Southern gentlemen to channel their aggressions and settle disputes according to a set of well-defined and mutually agreed-upon rules. By virtue of their upbringing and social standing, Southern gentlemen were bound by a code of honor, and they willingly believed in that code's principles and participated in its rituals. And one of the code's most time-honored rituals was dueling. Preston Brooks later said that Charles Sumner's insult to his family and to his state forced him to call Sumner to account for his libel. But while he considered challenging Sumner to a duel, in the end he decided against doing so for two reasons. First, he did not believe someone like Sumner, an abolitionist Yankee from Boston, would accept the challenge. And Brooks was most probably correct in this assumption, since Northerners were open about their contempt for what they considered a barbaric practice. The second reason Brooks did not issue a challenge to Sumner is that he wanted to treat Sumner appropriately. 
By this, Brooks meant that dueling was something one did with an equal, but someone who was thought of as inferior, inferior was instead thrashed or whipped. So, having decided he would either thrash or whip Sumner, Brooks chose not to use a horsewhip, since, as Brooks later said, Sumner was a physically large and powerful man, and Brooks was concerned that using a whip in such a situation would be awkward, and it might very well give Sumner a chance to wrest it from his hand. And so Brooks decided that his weapon of choice would be an easily wielded, ordinary walking cane. Brooks chose the cane because he'd be able to strike Sumner with it repeatedly, landing blows very quickly, so that, or so Brooks hoped, the larger and stronger Sumner wouldn't have a chance to defend himself. And so on May 22, 1856, as Preston Brooks marched up to Charles Sumner, he held a gold-headed cane in his hand. In a low voice, Brooks said, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Sumner, who had never met Brooks and so wouldn't have recognized the man standing beside his desk, made as if to rise from his seat. But before he could do so, Brooks struck him a vicious blow on top of the head. Brooks struck again quickly. For the first five or six blows, Sumner continued trying to stand up, but he'd been stunned by that first blow, and he also couldn't get his chair pushed back, so his legs were pinned beneath the desk. When some men, including New York Times reporter James W. Simonton, realized what was happening and tried to come to Sumner's aid, Congressman Lawrence Kite, a colleague who had accompanied Brooks into the Senate chamber, held them off by raising his own cane threateningly over his head and resting his other hand near his holstered pistol. Kite thundered, Let them alone! God damn, let them alone! While Kite held off any would-be rescuers, Brooks continued to rain blows, more than thirty of them, upon the defenseless Sumner. The senator's desks were bolted to the floor, so in his desperation to stand up, while he finally managed to wrench the desk off the floor, the dazed Sumner still couldn't disentangle himself from chair and desk. By then, the bloodied senator was losing consciousness, but still Brooks mercilessly pummeled the man until his cane broke into pieces. Brooks would later say, I repeated it till I was satisfied. No one interposed, and I desisted simply because I had punished him to my satisfaction. The doctor who attended Sumner immediately after the assault noted that the senator's head wounds were bleeding profusely and that in two places Sumner's scalp had been gashed so that bone was visible. In addition, Sumner had suffered defensive wounds on his hands and arms as he tried to fend off Brooks's attack. In the weeks following the attack, Sumner remained weak and disoriented. Even months later, visitors were shocked at the shattered condition of Sumner's health. Sumner's injuries, coupled with some sort of post-traumatic syndrome, incapacitated him and kept him from returning to the Senate for almost four years. During that time, the Massachusetts legislature left Sumner's seat in the chamber vacant as a visible rebuke to pro-slavery Southerners. While the caning left Charles Sumner debilitated and infirm, it made Preston Brooks a Southern hero. Brooks was arrested for assault, but immediately released on bail. Brooks's eventual trial in a criminal court in Washington, D.C. was travesty, as both the judge and prosecutor were Southern sympathizers. 
In the end, Brooks was found guilty of a minor infraction and levied a $300 fine. After its own investigation, the House of Representatives voted 121 to 95 to expel Brooks, but Southern opposition prevented the two-thirds majority needed to actually evict him from his seat. Brooks resigned anyway and returned to South Carolina, where he was welcomed home as a hero. His home state promptly re-elected him and sent him back to Congress. All over the South, rallies were held in support of Brooks. At one such gathering, a banner carried the inscription, Sumner and Kansas, let them bleed. And then Brooks received hundreds of canes as gifts from Southerners who wished to express their delight at his act. Meanwhile, Northerners reacted to the attack with shock, anger, and indignation. While the nature of the assault itself infuriated them, the delighted and enthusiastic Southern response in support of Brooks seemed to anger Northerners even more than the caning had done. Even Northerners who had no use for Sumner's extreme abolitionist views were nevertheless shocked at the violence that had been committed in the Senate chamber. Brooks's stunning assault on Charles Sumner convinced many Northerners that the two sections could no longer reasonably debate their sharp differences of opinion regarding slavery. The consequences of the caning were far-reaching. As we mentioned in the last episode, when news of Brooks's attack on Sumner reached Kansas, it enraged John Brown and seems to have played a factor in Brown's subsequent murderous attack on pro-slavery settlers. And then on the political front, the Republicans argued that just as the caning had unified the South, so must the North unify to protect its interests and constitutional rights. The Republicans shrewdly took advantage of the emotional wave of intense anti-slavery sentiment in the North after the caning to build support for their new party in the 1856 presidential election. As a result of Charles Sumner's provocative speech and then Preston Brooks' actions that day in May 1856, each side in the slavery debate became convinced that the gulf between their positions was unbridgeable. If such physical violence could take place in the chamber of the U.S. Senate, Many now wondered if the ongoing slavery debate could ever be settled peaceably. Brooks' stunning caning of Sumner irrevocably moved America another step closer to the Civil War, as the dramatic and violent incident in the Senate provided graphic evidence that the politics of compromise was giving way to the politics of confrontation. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation is a book we've referenced a few times already in the show. It's The Caning, The Assault That Drove America to Civil War by Stephen Puglio. While I may not totally agree with Puglio's assertion that the caning of Charles Sumner was the turning point leading to the Civil War, this is still the best book I've read on what was certainly an important incident in the steady progression of events that led up to secession and war. So there you go. That's The Caning by Stephen Puglio. And as always, you can check out all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The music we use at the start and finish of each show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used by permission of Spiritwood Music. And that does it for this episode, so we'll sign off by thanking y'all for listening to The Civil War, 1861-1865, to A History Podcast. 
We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.